This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's Sunday, November 12, 2023. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can support my work and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five-minute news. Joining us today is a professor of history at Boston College and an expert on American political and economic history. She is the author of seven books, including the award-winning How the South Won the Civil War. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Guardian, among others, and her widely read newsletter, Letters from an American, synthesizes history and modern political issues. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome to The Weekend Show. It's such a pleasure to be here. So we, we have a lot to talk about, and your expertise is, is going to be so very helpful at this, another kind of insane political juncture in American history. And the war in the Middle East has thrown a bit of a curveball into the election cycle, I guess. And so I want to talk about that a little bit later. But first, I want to talk about um, something that you wrote in your book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. You said the U.S. is teetering on the brink of authoritarianism. And you asked the question, how did this happen? I, I have a question to you, which I'd like you to you know, weave into that, which is that do people know that they are being sucked into a, a potential authoritarian future in the United States? Great question, because I think what we are seeing right now in this moment is people waking up to realize it's happening. So I think that as in the past, what happened in the years between, well, 19, the 1950s, but let's say 1981 with the arrival of Ronald Reagan in the White House, is the, the gradual erosion of democracy quite deliberately for a, a certain group of people to take power over the country. And it happened so slowly and it happened in such subtle ways that I think people didn't wake up to what was happening. So there's a real parallel there to the 1850s, by the way. But with the arrival of Donald Trump on the political scene and with the, the ways in which he tried to pervert democracy then and increasingly throughout his term and then after his term um, really have made inroads on the institutions of American democracy, I think people really are waking up to it. The question is whether we have woken up in time. When you talk about Donald Trump, you know, perverting the law and and the course of history, people that support him will turn you off. They'll be like, she's a snowflake. <laughs> she, she doesn't know what she's talking about. The, the, the polarization is such now that there isn't even a, a common political discourse to be had. It's like, nope, I don't want to hear it. And, you know, I've always been very interested in how we can kind of recapture people to understand that they're voting against their own interests and that democracy is something that serves everybody. 
So one of the things that scholars of language, uh, of whom I would count myself, talk about is that you have to be very careful not to work within the same box that your opponents do. So indeed, if you go to somebody and say, well, you know, Donald Trump sucks because he did this, then what you've done is you've accepted the terms of the debate by saying that we're only going to talk about the terms that that the, the radical right have set out. One of the things I think it's really important when we talk about American democracy and this moment in American democracy is recognize the longer patterns of it. So to be able not to say, um, I'm against book banning, and we're going to talk, drill down about what book banning means in this particular school district. But rather, if you look at the recent elections, uh, the recent November elections, what you see is people who managed to replace Moms for Liberty candidates for school board elections, for example, or who managed to get rid of people who were operating on platforms that called for attacks on trans children, things like that. What they did was not to argue it on those terms, but to argue it on the terms of in this country, we believe in the free exchange of ideas. We believe in public schools where experts get to have a say in the way our children are informed and where where parents who care about ideas get to make sure that they're the ones who choose what their children are reading, not somebody from another state or another town that is being informed on ways to, to be aggressive by Moms for Liberty, So, which is a very carefully named thing. So one of the things that I've really worked to do is to regain a national discourse that is based in American traditions and American political traditions, beginning with the Declaration of Independence. And that, of course, has really deep traditional and uh, political roots in the sense that that's exactly how Abraham Lincoln managed to take uh, a group of voters who were exclusively white and propertied. Uh, and men and make them realize that they had to stand against the spread of human enslavement of black Americans and women and children, people that they normally you, you would not normally associate as being big issues for them. He managed to convince them that rather than looking at that issue the same way the elite enslavers did. They needed to look at the issue as a larger trajectory of what it means to be an American. And when you do that, um, you know, we talk nowadays, for example, as you just did, about how divided Americans are, but they're really not. If you look at the polls, we agree in extraordinary numbers on basic common sense gun safety legislation. We agree in huge numbers on the right to bodily autonomy and the right to reproductive health care. You know, we agree overwhelmingly on the need for education. We agree overwhelmingly on the need for legislation to regulate business, for example. We agree in really high numbers on the idea that taxes should fall more heavily on corporations and on the very wealthy. And these are not radical positions at all. These are mainstream American positions, but they have been perverted, as I say, by a very few politicians who are now radical right extremists who want to impose on the rest of us either their vision of Christian nationalism or simply want to take all the goodies into their own hands, which is to get extraordinarily wealthy, as they have done since 1981. I, like you, probably don't fit into any kind of political box and i think that that's something you know i'm kind of proud of but it doesn't play well here in america i've discovered people are very keen to compartmentalize us and and give us a label um maybe we should join no labels and then we would have no label but again probably wouldn't work but my my point really is that 
you know, you're so right, and I've been saying this, we're all the same. We all have the same desires, the needs to be to be held and loved and understood and listened to. These things are really important, part of humanity, and, and they will find parallels in politics. But representation is the issue, isn't it? The people that are in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, they are not representing the majority proportionately, and their extremist views now have started out as fringe and have now come very much into the center. Well, absolutely. Um, but I, when, you, when the first thing you said is people are eager to put labels on us. And I think the word people there is doing a lot of work. Because, of course, if you look at how uh, voters, for example, who are different than the American people, of course, have sorted themselves. In fact, many people identify as independents. Now, pol political scientists will tell you that that's a bit of a misnomer because that generally just means they don't want to admit that they lean one way or the other. But it is striking. And one of the things that that always jumps out to me is the the need of politicians who are concerned about their majorities to uh, not only identify their own followers, but crucially to identify their opponents in a negative light. And that, of course, you can see as part of a deliberate strategy on the part of those people who have taken over the Republican Party. Traditional Republicans did not do that. Traditional Democrats did not do that, except in certain moments in the 19th century. Um, but what you're seeing now is a really explicit attempt to create uh, divisions where I don't think otherwise there would be. And that, you know, because most of us agree on the basic things that I was talking about, but that, I think, is an important in this moment because that division, that deliberate division of society is not simply, I think, internal to American politics. It is, of course, part of a larger attempt to divide the American population, to divide the centrists in the United States, in the EU, in places around the world. And that is a really deliberate strategy of pitting the, the extremes against the middle. And by put, pitting the extremes against the middle, you can divide a society. And that's really clearly articulated in a lot of Russian political theory the idea of increasing the power of Russia to become an, a, a new imperial Russia depends on tearing apart democracies. And the way you tear about apart democracies is, as I say, by pitting those ends against the middle. And I think that one of the things we're seeing now is not only the, the, the longstanding attempt, especially on the American right, to divide America in two, but the supercharging of that through social media by bad actors in other countries. And, you know, if you're watching the Department of Justice, you will see there again and again and again, indicting foreign actors for doing precisely that, not just from Russia, but from an Iran, from China, from places like that as well. How much of this, because, you know, you, you, we are required to do quite a lot of reading, quite a lot of mastication, understanding of this, of this information. And this phrase, a low information voter, which is something that was kind of new to me when I moved to the U.S. It's like, what a nice, it's a bit like calling uh, immigrants illegals. I was like, you know, it doesn't quite sit well with me. But I understand the premise, and that is that not everybody is well-read and not everybody understands the bigger picture and is able to make informed decisions, partly because education is not so great in the U.S., public education, but also people don't have the time because they're too busy working multiple jobs to, to make a living. So... And, and some argue that that is on purpose, you know, keep people stupid. So, so how, do, how does one communicate to the so-called low-information voters? Because they are certainly convinced, and we'll get on to cults a little bit later, but they are certainly convinced 
that they know what they're talking about that that you know that all their solutions uh can be can be dealt with by one man and and that really you know anything other than those kind of talking points those far right talking points is is not really up for debate it's very difficult isn't it to communicate and and get your message across and and talk to people when information is so low well there's there's a couple of things there that i think it's useful to pull apart so if you are talking about the the died in the wool cannot change their opinion trump voters who were created largely during his term they come into his support of course in 2015 to 2016 but they really become that as you say cult like or cult you know straight up cult following during his term and after his term. And again, I'm picking on political scientists here, but political scientists will tell you when you have a reactionary right movement, there's 20 to 30% of the population, largely usually lower to the, to the 20s, who cannot be changed. They are in it. They are not going to change their minds. There's nothing you can do that won't reinforce what they already believe. And the only thing you can do for them is to model a healthy political system and hope that someday they see the light, see the light, but most of them never will. Those are not reachable people. But when you talk about low information voters, that's a different thing, or it can be a different thing. Although those Trump people obviously are not only low information, they explicitly reject alternative informations and will say, I don't care. I don't care if he's going to do that. He's my guy. And that in that case, they're talking coming from a very uh, cultural position. They're coming from a from a number of things that have very little to do with politics, reality or the future. They are only about sort of an, a, a primal scream, if you will. But low information voters are, are a different thing. And those are voters who in the past have been able simply not to pay attention because the guardrails were there and it didn't really matter to them who was in office because they were disaffected from politics or they weren't interested in politics or they didn't think it mattered. And they don't follow the news. So one of the things that that always jumps out to me is after the midterms, that always uh, within the week after the midterms, people st- start talking about the following presidential election. And my take on that is just stop. Like nobody wants to hear about another election in this moment, except perhaps people whose jobs depend on talking about elections, because we're sick of even I'm sick of elections to to, you know, two days after the midterm elections when they're still two years out for before the next presidential election. So a lot of them are, are tuned out. A lot of them are still tuned out. But one of the things that has happened really since uh, January 6th and well, during Trump's administration, too, but during, since January 6th and especially since the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision is people who previously felt it didn't really particularly matter who was in office. They didn't care. Politics wasn't their thing. They recognize that it really matters now. And those voters are low information in the sense that they are waking up to what information is out there, but they're also low information in the sense that they don't really understand how the system works. And that's where I think people like you and me come in is simply saying, hey, listen, we are looking at not being able to fund the government. This is what that means. And this is why it happens. And this is how it normally happens. But it's not happening that way right now. And actually providing information, because as you say, it's no, it's no sin that people don't understand how things work. If you asked me how to rebuild an engine, I couldn't begin to do it, although I could maybe find a spark plug, right? But 
simply informing people of how a system that they have not previously been tied into works is a cr crucial role, I think, for us going into 2024. And you can certainly see how it is paying off with the extraordinary levels of voter registration among young Americans and with the, the mobilization, especially of suburban women, who, again, previously just weren't that engaged and now feel quite rightly that their lives depend on being engaged. And that, I think, is a major factor going forward into the next election. And we just saw a reaction to that in these special elections and kind of halfway elections where the the, the row reversal basically ha has kind of infused its way. I think the effect of it, because, you know, there's been a year or two that has passed so that people that need to access abortion have not been able to. And that information or that experience is being spread around communities. People are talking and they're starting to feel physically the effects of not getting access to the the care that they they need and uh, having to cross state lines or get Gavin Newsom to have to pay to bring, bring them to California as is 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 happening do you think how how much is is that abortion issue going to be the thing that kind of catapults democrats to to victory in 2024 do you think because now obviously the strategists are looking at what happened last week and they're like well we need to make we need to make november all about this it's huge you know, one of the things that happened, uh, you know, uh, uh, about a year after Dobbs is I heard an older Republican male pundit saying that people were going to forget about Jackson uh, women's health. It, it wasn't going to be an issue and that they were going to forget. And I just remembered my head exploding because for any woman, even past childbearing years, the the medical care that is involved in reproductive health is at the very least a monthly concern, but generally simply part of daily lives. And that is obviously something that the men who are legislating on these issues don't understand. But the idea that women are suddenly going to go, yeah, we don't care. We're going to go ahead and let, you know, the, the Christian nationalists decide about literally our lives and not just our lives, but of course, everything that comes from that. I mean, if you look again at our history in the United States, the invention of the birth control pill is huge in getting women into work, the workplace because they begin to have control over their reproductive cycles. And the, the idea that we're going to erase that at the same time that other democratic countries are expanding those rights. I, I, I'm speaking of being in bubbles. I think the ideas of the people who pushed that legislation and who are now trying to backpedal on it and and try and make American women accept a smaller piece of a pie that they enjoyed as a constitutional right for 50 years is absolutely delusional. And that I think is you can see in the in the elections we've had since Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health and the fact that Democrats have overperformed by eight points in those elections. That's not because, um, you know, suddenly people are waking up and saying, gee, I really care about tax policy. That's women and, and the men who support them, by the way, it's not just a women's issue. It's obviously a, a man's issue as well, saying, you know, we cannot turn our basic rights over to a minority of the American people who adhere to an extreme version of Christian evangelicism. That's not what this country is all about. And so that then becomes uh, at the very visceral level one about actual body autonomy, bodily autonomy. But then it very quickly becomes a question about who gets to make decisions in society. And do we, in fact, want to turn our government over to this, to the Mike Johnsons of the world? 
And there you you get into another issue. We are currently in a situation where we're looking at a somebody who has never faced an opponent, who has very weird, at the very least, finances, and probably um, is doing something that the rest of us probably would not. I'm not suggesting necessarily that it's illegal, but it's a form of engaging with our financial system that most of us don't experience, um, has no experience at all putting together a big team of people to make the actual government work, and now has to fund the government, and and at least as you and I were speaking, appears to have absolutely no plan. That idea of turning the the finances of our government, the, the strongest government in the world, over to somebody who says his guide is the Bible is going to bring home to people who think they don't care about Dobbs versus Jackson women's health just how dangerous it is to put a, a Christian nationalist and extremist into positions of power in this country. I think that's a powerful message. You think people understand the difference between moderate Christianity and, and Christian nationalism and, and the idea that Christianity can be weaponized? Because, you know, obviously the evangelical vote is a big one and Donald Trump lied about being a Christian and all that stuff in order to kind of grab those people. And in fact, Donald Trump welcomed all waifs and strays in order to boost his numbers. That was part of the issue, whether it be fine people on both sides or anything else. You know, he he wasn't discriminating, probably for the first time in his life, about, you know, who could and, and, and shouldn't be in his fold. And yet... We're now in a situation where, in my experience, talking to people, they don't understand the threat of having Mike Johnson as the Speaker of the House, the second in line to the presidency, and him being an extremist because he doesn't look like one. He has a lovely face and perfect hair, and he wears a suit rather well, and he speaks very quietly and kindly, and he's not brandishing a weapon or, you know, giving, you know, he's he doesn't look like what an American might consider an extremist to look like. He doesn't have any tattoos, I presume. So so just kind of respond to that. Um, I love these questions because um, th- there was a generation speaking there that um, it just in your last comment, of course, for our generation, tattoos had a certain meaning. For the next generation, tattoos have a very different meaning. Yeah, so I suspect true. that we, it, I suspect we're going to see more and more of our, you know, our leaders with tattoos, yeah. um, and it will become more of an issue of extremism not to have them. Um, but, um, but. There, there. I am not a scholar of Christian demographics, um, so that's the first thing to say there. But that being said, I think you have your answer in the Ohio vote in, last week, yeah. where a, a significant proportion of Republicans crossed the line to support the idea of reproductive rights being enshrined in the Ohio Constitution. And the um, the one of the things that I would say, because I'm from a rural area, and I used to be a waitress in the Bible Belt. And um, so I worked closely with evangelical Christians and I have worked closely with Christians um, in, in, and I live with Christians and I live around, uh, I live in a very mixed area where there are Trump supporters through um, communists in, in, in my area. And what I would say is that when you are in at least a small town, there is a very clear difference between Christians and Christian Republicans and the evangelical extremists. And the the distinctions that we may not see from people who don't identify as Christian, who are more highly educated, who are um, look at the Christians as a group, 
I think perhaps don't recognize the distinction that is there between people who are traditionally Republican because their parents were Republican, because they are part of a, a system in which being Republican is a mark of um, social identity, and those who are militant Christian extremists. And um, and that distinction is re was really important in Ohio, where you literally now have members of the Ohio legislature, uh, members of the North Dakota legislature, members of the, the current day Ohio Republican Party simply saying they don't care what the voters decided. They are going to continue to try and, and, and stop all abortions in Ohio. And yet you had a significant proportion of people who self-identify as Republicans switching over and saying, nah, we're not part of that evangelical thing. So I think that's actually something really, again, to, to, to remember is that it is, there is traditional Republicanism that in fact supports reproductive rights. Planned Parenthood was very famously supported by the Romney family. You know, it was part of the idea that people should have control over their futures, control over their destinies, and a pushback at the time against the Catholic Church's concept of the idea that one accepted all the babies that one was given. And that traditional Republican idea is, is not that old. So I think it is possible, once again, to highlight that most the majority of Americans sit in a pretty comfortable center here that is something different than the Mike Johnsons of the world, than the, um, the Jim Jordans of the world, than the, uh, you know, the extremists who are saying, if democracy doesn't give us what we want, we're going to overthrow democracy because our Bible and our God is more important to us than those basic tenets of what it means to be an American. Did you hear the clip of Mike Johnson saying that if we kept all the babies that were terminated, then we would be able to pay for Social Security and the cost of running the country. I mean, that thinking, not only does it lack any kind of intellectual basis, but it is it is presented in a way that seems like, you know, again, because of he's like a Trojan horse, that guy, isn't he? You know, he really presents quite well and unfortunately we're at a stage now in the u.s where if you're wearing a suit and you say it in a moderate way some people are going to believe you yeah some people are um you know i'm very interested in the the gender split in the way people perceive politics which has been growing since 1980 that's the first time we see it women and men in the same demographic splitting and women voting much more heavily for a democratic candidate now of course that's on steroids and one of the reasons for that is that women who have experience in the public sphere recognize that behavior. Not all of them, but I will, I was just telling something the other day. I remember when Donald Trump was looming over Hillary Clinton in the debates and, um, and talking to a man about that, watching those debates and him going, why is he doing that? Like what's yeah. going on? And there isn't a woman who watched that, who's been in the workplace or anywhere else who, who didn't absolutely get that he was trying to intimidate her and enforce his dominance over her. So I would love to see that split, but you've touched on something that that I think is really interesting. And I, you know, I've been watching, I am not a Christian and I am not a scholar of modern American religion. I'm actually quite good on the Puritans, if you'd like to talk about the Puritans. But, um, but from the beginning, from the first time that Trump got into office, you had a significant pushback of extremely religious people who recognized that his, the, the, the form of Christianity that he was embracing was antithetical to everything they believed in. Most notably, um, the, uh, 
I'm, I'm going to get the title wrong and I'm sorry. It's, it was something like Mormon women against Trump. That actually may be what they were called. And one of the reasons I, I believe that Mitt Romney began to moderate his stance early on was because he was facing extraordinary pressure at home from Mormon women. And one of the things that, that, I have been sort of interested in is which way the Christian community, not the not the far right evangelical Christian community, which is wedded to Donald Trump, would would jump. But the Christian community, because the truth is, as you have Johnson saying outrageous things like that, or the many members of the House Oversight Committee or the House Judicial Committee going out on television and really clearly lying. I mean, really clearly um, within the last week, there was one of them caught out for saying that he was absolutely going to enforce subpoenas against um, uh, Hunter Biden and James Biden, the, pres uh, the president's brother. And the, the news reporter said, well, well, why didn't you do the same against Steve Bannon? And he said, well, you know, you didn't have to do that because, you know, he, he wasn't in office. And the person said, well, Hunter Biden and James Biden aren't in office. And the person just sort of circled the drain on that. And and because, of course, that is absolutely true. They're bending the system to try and go after people based on their own ideological beliefs. And the thing that interests me about that is I don't think that's a really good look for the Christian brand either. And if you look at the rate at which people are dropping away from a declared support for Christianity in this country, I am not a Christian, as I say, but if I were one and I were interested in spreading the word of my my deity, I would be very concerned about being associated with those extremists who are openly lying, um, following what certainly looks to be a cult-like figure, acting in ways that certainly to those of us who don't share that, uh, that religion um, look really like something we wouldn't want to be part of. And in this moment, it will be, you know, you're starting to see organizations like the Mormon Women Against Trump, like some of the, you know, the other Christian organizations splitting off and saying, that's not us. And you can see splits, for example, in the Southern Baptist community, where they are trying on the one hand to reject the, the extreme um, radicalism which, by the way, Mike Johnson was part of, and trying to, to bring uh, uh, the Southern Baptists back into a much more mainstream position, which they, have, which they left in the 1970s. So it, 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 it's not really part of what you and I are supposed to be talking about, but in terms of looking forward to politics, there is movement in communities other than the ones that we are looking at just as political communities, as there always is in a time of extraordinary social upheaval. It's, it's very interesting because these small groups and communities, they don't get the media coverage. So we don't really know how they are uh, organizing and, and, and how activated they, they have become. We have to take a quick pause for our sponsor, but we're going to come back and talk more in just a moment here on The Weekend Show. We all hate wasting food. Now, nothing is ever wasted thanks to Lomi. I have a Lomi and it's changed the way I think about my food waste. Lomi transforms my trash into treasure at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into plant food in four hours. There's no rotting food in my garbage and smelling up the kitchen now. I only take the trash out on garbage day. Plus, no more leaky bags. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich loamy earth that I can feed to my plants, lawn or garden instead of sending it to the landfill. I can help the environment and make my life easier. 
All my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge can go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food at home. And now Lomi's new app lets me track my environmental impact, earn points for every cycle, and redeem freebies from Lomi plus other great brands. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use the promo code weekend to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use promo code weekend at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Did you know that over 80% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about? It's too easy to subscribe to a free trial of something and then completely forget about it once you stop using it, right as the monthly charges start rolling in. That's why I'm such a huge fan of Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just the press of a button. No more hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money does all the work for you. Rocket Money can even negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Take it from me, I'm a huge fan of Rocket Money and they have saved me on numerous occasions. Rocket Money also lets you monitor all of your expenses in one place, recommends custom budgets based on your past spending and they'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. With over 5 million users and counting, Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of $720 a year and a billion dollars in total savings so far. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash weekend. That's rocketmoney.com slash weekend. rocketmoney.com slash weekend. We're back with Heather Cox Richardson here on The Weekend Show. I'm Anthony Davis. Let's talk about um, the authoritarianism, which is a, a word that people are having to kind of relearn. And as a scholar of history, surely you must be thinking a lot about parallels, and the cyclical nature of this maybe, or the fact that, that maybe you've predicted that we'd find ourselves in this situation where one man... A solitary individual, which I always find amazing, seems to have changed the, the, the whole face of, a, of American politics. And if we think back to 2015, before this all happened, how, how different the U.S. was and, and how, even though it was divided, it, there wasn't enemies in this, in this way, as we talked a little bit about earlier. Um, let's just look backwards before we go forwards. Where in, in history... Do you think we should be looking to educate ourselves about the situation currently and where we might be headed? Well, just in a nutshell, the way we got here was that after World War II, members of both political parties believed that the government had a role to play in regulating business, providing a basic social safety net, promoting infrastructure and protecting civil rights. And that came out of FDR's New Deal, which began in 1933, and it expanded under 
Dwight Eisenhower's uh, middle way, as he called it, when he really emphasized civil rights and infrastructure. So um, that was so widely spread, it was called the liberal consensus. But from 1937 onward, when it became clear this wasn't simply a flash in the pan, people who hated that liberal consensus, and those would primarily be um, businessmen who wanted to get rid of business regulation. Curiously, they weren't that concerned about taxes because they wanted to pay down the, the uh, World War II debt. But they were very concerned about business regulation and Southern Democrats who hated the idea that the government would interfere in race relations begin to articulate an ideology that says, no, that's not what government should do. Government has no business uh, regulating business because you need to let men have the ability to organize their businesses however they want and accumulate as much uh, capital as they possibly can. It has no role to play in providing a basic social safety net because that belongs to the churches. It has no role in infrastructure because that'll cost tax dollars and that's best done by private enterprise so that individuals make money doing it. And finally, that they want absolutely no intervention in any kind of race issues. They're not really talking about gender issues at the time, but race issues because that belongs to home rule. That is, they want the states to be able to decide to discriminate against the people within them. And they articulate that in 1937. Everybody thinks they're bonkers because they have this incredible GDP. They have, the, uh, not in 37, but by at the period after the war, they have this incredible GDP. Strong unions mean people are making a lot of money. The gap between the rich and the poor is really sinking so that there's about an eight, per, uh, an eight times as much um, money at the top of a CEO's salary, for example, for Ford, as there is for a regular worker. That number is now over 300. They um, they believed that this system really worked. But those people who were determined to tear it apart were able to jump on the um, Brown versus Board of Education decision in which the federal government said it would protect the the right of um, African-American children to attend public schools. It would defend civil rights to say, we always told you that this big government was going to um, to upset race relations. And crucially, the way it's going to do that is a form of socialism, because in order to protect uh, black children in the schools, as, for example, Eisenhower did in 1957 in Little Rock Central High School, that's going to cost tax dollars. And those tax dollars are going to come from white people who have property. So your tax dollars, your you white guy, your tax dollars are being redistributed for the good of black people. And therefore, this is socialism that puts black people over white people, and it's going to destroy the country. That wedge is what gave us um, the language that you're going to see as soon as uh, that's 57 that we see Eisenhower using the troops in Little Rock. 60, you get um, uh, uh, the Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater's ghost written ghost uh, conscience of a conservative that embraces that argument that I just said that they were developing. By 64, he's running for president and he is backed by the deep Southern states. That's he wins five deep Southern states and his home state of Arizona in 64. 68, Nixon has to decide if he's going to continue down this road. And he actually turns to Strom Thurmond, who had quite visibly and publicly switched his allegiance from the Democrats to the Republicans in 64 to back Goldwater. And Nixon says to Thurmond, you know, 
If you will stick with us, we will not use the federal government to push desegregation in the states. That's the Southern strategy. And you see uh, Ronald Reagan picking that up in 1980 when he runs for office with the image of the welfare queen, a black woman who is stealing tax dollars through welfare programs. But crucially, in order to do that, you have to divide the country. And and in 19 after 1970, after the Kent State shooting of May of 1970. The Nixon administration quite deliberately uses um, uh, Sparrow Agnew, the vice president, to polarize the country. He calls it positive polarization. He's going to split the country in two. And he says it's positive because it means Republicans will get so scared of that other that they will vote Republican. And that system of demonizing those people who want to defend that government that we had after 1933 as socialists became so integral to the Republican Party as their actual programs became less and less and less popular that by the time you got to the rise of Donald Trump in 2015, 2016, you know, there is this sense among diehard Republicans that Democrats are socialists. They are anti-American. They are trying to destroy the this American middle class. And it was completely a rhetorical device. But crucially, in order to continue being elected, the Republicans needed that base. They needed to turn out that base, but they never expected that base would take control. So what people uh, who are supporting the Republicans in 2016, I'm sorry, 2012, for example, or 2014 even, are arguing for is tax cuts and deregulation. That's really what is driving the 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 lawmakers of the Republican Party. But they need those votes. They need the votes of the people who are being turned out by the racism and the sexism. And what happens is that 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 um, preparation of a group of voters, a, a, a really self-identified um, group of disaffected people who think that the government is acting for the good of people they hate rather than for them, which is not true. I mean, that's just, it's this ideology that had come to define them, again, rather like the, the 1850s in the American South. That construction was ripe for a strong man to come in. And it's, you know, the, the Republican caucuses and, and um, primaries are designed to be, as you say, in low information states because the expectation amongst the Republican leaders was that voters would back people who had good name recognition. So they thoroughly expected that their candidate in 2016 was going to be Jeb Bush. He had name recognition. But of course, Trump comes in like a wrecking ball with better name recognition and turns, you know, just shreds that entire system. And then, of course, ends up messing around in the RNC so that he gets delegates he actually hadn't earned. But once Trump comes in, he takes that population and he, he turns them into a movement. And that's something that's very different um, than, than just using the rhetoric. He does that, too. But he begins to turn them into a movement by... Uh, courting that base as his, uh, as his. So that statement, you know, of their good people on both sides is an attempt to take those street gangs, if you will, the militias, the people who had been organizing really since the Clinton administration as a military group, as an anti-government group, and bring them to his side. 
And once he has done that, once he has given them permission to hurt other people, not just to talk about hurting other people, but to hurt other people, that's how you build a right wing movement. And once they have become, you know, welded to you, to each other and to a leader, then he could feed them any information that they would then take to heart. So, for example, the idea that 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 COVID was not dangerous. I mean, his people lapped that up and he killed them. You know, but they were willing to do that. And in many ways, that's the ultimate expression of a strong man when he can convince his followers literally to let themselves die for his cause, not with the expectation that their lives will get any better, but they will have a hero. They are part of a heroic movement. And that's how you create a strong man. So, you know, we're in such a different place than we were in 2015. But I would argue we're in a different place going forward from this moment going into the 2024 election, because Trump is not hiding that this is exactly what he intends to do going forward. He intends to weaponize the Justice Department. He intends to throw his opponents in jail. He is talking obliquely now, but I suspect that will not last, about killing his opponents, people like uh, former Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley. And he's laying it all on the table, saying, if you put me into office again, you will never have to worry about another election to his people. You will never have to worry in the future about ever anybody taking advantage of you again because I am your retribution. That's actually a quote from him. And what concerns me in this moment is the degree to which many people in the media are not recognizing this transition and are still trying to talk about him as if he's about tax cuts, because that is so far in the rear view mirror, you can't even see the headlights. And in this moment, we, what we've seen in since 2015 is the rise of an authoritarian and the the it's it's classic this this exchange and we are now at a point where people absolutely need to recognize that this is going on but also to recognize that it's not just Donald Trump it is members of his movement so for example the people who are now in charge of the house of representatives I don't think, or, or Tommy Tuberville in the Senate refusing to, to let military appointments go through, or people like Rand Paul who are refusing to let State Department appointments go through. There is a very real attack on our democracy. And, and, you know, part of me just can't figure out why everybody isn't walking around with their hair on fire. Um, but this, I think, is something we need to wake people up to. Uh, it's been proven that the media needs Trump for advertising revenue he's he's he represents box office to them so you know my my explanation for the reason that they're not exposing him fully is because they they need him and they probably want him to win and you know that is an unfortunate state of affairs when media is for profit <laughs> operating in in a kind of capitalist environment but I want to talk about Project 2025 a little bit later, but you touched on that, that this is like the Heritage Foundation, various organizations that have contributed towards a manifesto for what they want the Republican president, whoever he may be or she may be, more likely he may be, to be in, 20, in 2025. But the point I wanted to make is that everything that Trump stands for Actually, that's not fair. He doesn't really stand for anything. The stuff that he says, the, the the vile stuff, even the weaponization of these cases against him and claiming that it's, you know, 
Joe Biden's trying to shut him down, don't want him to run, election interference, using all this very kind of visceral language, that his supporters lap it up. They want it. They want him to be a sex abuser. They want him to be uh, racist and xenophobic towards migrants and, and, and minority groups. They thrive off of his negativity and his anger. And, and, and many are now starting to say that he is the embodiment of Christ. The, the, the religious right is saying that he, you know, when he speaks, it's God speaking or it's Jesus speaking. He has been elevated to a point now past even those dictators from history. This is a whole new version of the authoritarian that I have never really read about before. Well, you have read about it if you've read the Harry Potter books. Right. You know, Voldemort. Because, is that where you're going with this? Yes, because yeah. that and, and more Narcissa, um, who the, 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 that, you know, JK Rowling was very well versed in the rise of authoritarians. And this is, ab you know, absolutely laid out by theoreticians like Hannah Arendt and Eric Hoffer after World War II. That, and Hoffer, I think, does better with, with Arendt in this particular, um, uh, allegiance in that he makes the, the very clear point in, um, uh, true believers, that once you have committed yourself to an authoritarian and he starts to hurt other people, you psychologically must believe that those people deserve it. So the worse that person behaves, the happier you are, the tighter you cling to him. Um, I actually would add a, a, a different psychological piece to that, that Hoffer deals with less. And that is that in order to walk away from that, it's very, very difficult. You know, it's psychologically difficult because you have to admit you were the bad guy. But if you look, for example, at even the thing, the, the piece that McKay Coppins, I guess it's a book now, but the piece that McKay Coppins put in the Atlantic Monthly, or the Atlantic, sorry, in history, it was the Atlantic Monthly, the Atlantic, um, about um, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah sort of eating his salmon by himself. And, you know, it was like this, this, this portrait of a man who had no friends, yeah. you know, turning your back on that community is turning your back on your social circles, your 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 family circles, everything. And it's very, very difficult to get out of, which is why people talk about it as a cult and why they talk about deprogramming those people. Um, and so, yeah, all that is true. It's also, um, as I say, if you are somebody who cares about Christianity, it does seem to be a, a rather classic example of having a false god. And Trump said recently that he's more famous than Jesus. He was, that he got made up a, into a lot of trouble, didn't it? Right. He, he made up a story about a guy on the golf course telling him that he was more famous than Jesus. He was like, no, okay, maybe I am. This whole kind of rhetorical fantasy world. That, but isn't that, that interesting? In. When, 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 um, when uh, uh, John Lennon said that, the Beatles had desperately to backpedal. And to say, oh, he didn't mean that and all that. And yet, you know, this was the, that was when the, the Beatles were, you know, everybody screamed when they saw them. Yeah. And now, you know, you can get somebody who is a front runner for the Republican nomination to say that and still be backed by people who self-identify as Christians, which shows you just how much the world has changed in the past 60 years. But this is the point I make about the power of, of the Donald Trump movement is that it seems to transcend not just reality, but a moral compass and the idea that we want to 
um, you know, just be 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 better people, you know. And he thinks that he, because I'm not convinced that he thinks that he's the baddie, right? He he thinks that he's the goody in this story, and and he has convinced himself of that narrative, and is now just repeating his own lies. And has you know, he doesn't really know which way is up, which way is down, but he's running with it. And really, arguably, the only reason he wants to be president again is to get himself out of these prosecutions. Well, he's, he, you know, seems like a classic personality type. And I, you said he had no principles. I disagree with that. His principle is that he has to be the best and the, the most important in every situation. So he could look at me and say one thing, turn his head and look at you and say the complete opposite. And both would be true because he would be yeah. trying to get our support. Yeah. Um, that's obviously that's the populism not playing out, right? What's that? That's the populism playing out. The, well, I, I would say it's narcissism playing out. Populism is, um, I think, slightly different. But um, but to speak to um, to tr- you know what you're saying about Trump, um, yes, I mean he's a he is uh, a, a very different kind of figure than we've had. He appeals to people's worst sides. Um, I think you can uh, tear apart what people are looking at when they look at Trump, that it is a, a, a cultural snarl, if you will, because again, since the Nixon administration, when his speechwriter Pat Buchanan very deliberately said they could whip up voters by telling them that the elites hated them. Um, somebody said that to me the other day, and I said, you know, I think I kind of am part of the elites. I've got degrees from Harvard and all that. And I have literally never heard anybody say that. So where are you getting that? And he goes, well, everybody knows it. And I'm like, well, you know, this is why rhetoric works so terribly well. But it is also, I think, crucially important, as I say, not to live in the Trump box. Uh, Yes, he desperately wants to be in power because he wants to, you know, he can't stand not to have been elected. As you know that now, he says he's been elected in all 50 states, except that there was cheating. Um, And he desperately needs to stay out of prison. Which is, uh, you know, a very real thing. If you just look at the statistics, let alone any of the evidence, somebody who's been indicted four times on 91 counts has a pretty good chance of being in trouble. And crucially, also in the Manhattan case, the judge has already uh, decided the issue of fraud and said that, in fact, these people committed fraud. and, And what they're deciding now is penalties. If the Trump organization can't do business in New York, the, the his financial base is gone. I mean, that that's that is hugely important. I know a lot of people may not be paying that much attention to it, but that is hugely important. Um, and then, of course, let's not forget the the Eugene Carroll case where a judge has said, yes, he committed uh, he is not was not held liable for rape, but he committed what anybody would understand in the United States to be rape. So the man's in trouble, you know, so. He's creating. But he's still yeah. immune to a certain extent, though, isn't he? Because you could argue that judging Goran, who's just now put another—it's uh, not quite a gag order, but you know, certainly fining him for stepping outside the boundaries of that that gag order to not criticize the council—is you know should have thrown him in jail several times over the past three weeks and hasn't. And so Trump's fame. His his celebrity does create a certain level of immunity, and it's this respect for the office of president that I guess does it. That that you know why why Judge and Goran feels that he just can't put Trump in a prison cell even for twenty four hours because the backlash will be so significant, and you know the the there are Trump supporters literally gr- holding onto their muskets waiting for the civil war. 
Not in New York. Just let's, you know, that's, that's it. where, where, you know, and that's not insignificant. I mean, the fact yeah. that he was first indicted in New York mattered because you knew there weren't going to be people with pitchforks in New York. There was actually a wonderful um, young activist there named Victor Shai who happened to be there when the, the news came down and he's out there with his camera ready to film all the, all the protesters. And he's like, wait, there are none. You know, <laughs> yeah. because he's, he's been on this show, actually, Victor, and he's, he's fantastic. Well, well, and finally he, finally he found somebody, ran over to him and he goes, darn it, they're, they're suburban women from New Jersey and they're supporting the indictment. But, um, but my point is not that. Trump is absolutely playing the system. He has protection. It, it both horrifies me and infuriates me that national lawmakers in the Senate and the House of Representatives appear to be afraid of the voters that they are enabling by refusing to tell them that, in fact, Trump is lying to them. And you got to give Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, former governor of New Jersey and former governor of Arkansas, credit for saying to people's faces, he is lying to you and getting booed and yelled at and all that. That is so overdue, I can't tell you. And it infuriates me when people say that they are afraid of the, what they have created, when in fact they turned those people on people like me many years ago. And as you say, when we spoke up, implied that we were, you know, weak or snowflakes for, you know, complaining about death threats. So, um, so it, as I say, it horrifies me that this is happening, but I'm also angry that they are now saying, oh boy, you know, this is not good because they were perfectly happy to turn it on people that they perceive to be weak as they are now doing against LGBTQ plus people. I mean, come on folks. Yeah. But I started out this conversation by saying it was really important not to let the radical right define the terms in which we are talking about things. And Trump, for all that he has power and all that, he is incoherent and people are going to see that as soon as he goes forward. And he is I'm sorry, boring. You know, you said that the, the the media needs him. The media needs him to be interesting and he is not interesting anymore. We have all seen this act a million times. And while obviously people will still turn out to see it, that's not interesting anymore. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is the extraordinary level of grassroots organizing of people who were not previously interested in politics, who are looking at all the hatred you are identifying and saying, that's not who we are. We are these people over here. We are these people who care about our institutions, who care about people having the right to vote, who care about bodily autonomy, who care about not having our children murdered in schools, which is so fundamental to what a country should be about. It's extraordinarily hard to argue with it, which you can see by the fact that more than 80% of us want common sense gun safety legislation. So that I think is a story that is waiting to be told. And in terms of the media, I would be maybe more charitable and less charitable than you about the media. Um, yes, I think that they are in the habit of covering Trump because he's really easy. I mean, I write every night as you do, and um, and it would be so easy just to be able to say the latest thing that that Trump did that was outrageous. But in fact, talking about what the administration is doing, for example, to reinforce our port safety is not really that interesting, but it's crucially important. And it does strike me that every time I hear the media needs Trump, the media needs Trump. Yes, they think they do. 
But look at the followings that those of us who are not part of the media have developed by telling very complicated stories about how government's really supposed to work. There is a media shift underway. There is a national shift underway. It is a very interesting shift. I wrote the other day to people. I said, you know, why don't we hear anything? We keep hearing the administration talking about how many new jobs are created by the Inflation Reduction Act and by the Chips and Science Act, for example, and by the American Rescue Plan still. But I have never seen an article about people who got jobs under those. Do you have jobs under those things? People are still flooding me with stories. And those are stories that I think people would like to hear. They are represented in them. And um, that is, I think, a big error on the part of the media. I think there's a huge market out there for people who would like to see themselves represented in the media. And I think that people like you and me are taking that role away from them because they have abdicated it. That story, the story of the people who uh, voted in Ohio to enshrine the right to reproductive autonomy in a, a, a bright red state, is a really interesting story. And if you're looking at the sweep of history, that's today's story, not Donald Trump. The key to that, though, is, of course, the number of people that Donald Trump has put in crucial positions and whether or not the majority is going to be able to combat the voter suppression, for example, that took place last week in Michigan. So there are a lot of competing stories going on. One last piece, though, about what you said about people who are wedded to Trump and simply like that he is going to create the kind of havoc that he is threatening. This makes me profoundly sad, not necessarily in the present, but because we have seen this before. And this is the impoverished white men who turned out to fight for the Confederacy because they believed that they were defending a new nation and that they were defending a nation in which they would be important. And when they got into that war, what they discovered was that the Confederate lawmakers wrote the laws in such a way that the rich guys didn't have to fight. They fought in the initial wave because they thought it was going to be very quick. But then as soon as they start to legislate, they get rid of uh, the idea that rich people have to fight. They get rid of the idea of representative democracy. People for, people complain about Lincoln. They forget that Jefferson Davis imposed martial law across the American South. Uh, they get rid of the right really to have a say in their governments, and they die like lambs to the slaughter. And I look at people nowadays, you know, waving their Trump flags and yeah, they're going to fight. And, and my, you know, my husband calls them keyboard warriors, because when push comes to shove, those keyboard warriors are going to be the people that get thrown into the maw the same way that Putin is doing to his people. And obviously, I'm not on their side. I, I, I would like I would like to stop this before it gets to that point, because at the end of the day, they will pay as badly as everybody else does and they will never give up their beliefs. But I look at the slaughter and, and what happened to the American South in just four years from 1861 to 1865, because poor white guys were like, yeah, I'm going to fight for Alexander Stevens. And Alexander Stevens didn't give two hoots in hell about them. So that moment, I think, is important as well. Okay. Another quick pause, and then I want to come back and talk finally about someone that we haven't mentioned, actually, and that is President Joe Biden. Next on The Weekend Show. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Maid's bed sheets. 
Inspired by NASA, Miracle Maid uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get a better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bedsheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing outbreaks and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code weekend at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend and use the code weekend to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. That's trymiracle.com slash weekend to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible, is so, so important. We have a heartfelt reason to support our blood pressure. In fact, more than half the US population would benefit from blood pressure support. Well, Superbeats Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure, and they promote heart-healthy energy. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. And with over 30,000 five-star reviews and counting, Superbeats Heart Chews are having their moment. Superbeats Heart Chews are incredibly delicious and so much better than any alternative supplements out there. I take my Superbeats Heart Chews each morning and it's really kick-started my morning routine. After taking Superbeats Heart Chews, I feel like I have more energy and I'm ready to take on the day. Superbeats Heart Chews support healthy circulation, so you not only get blood pressure support, you also get productive, heart-healthy energy without the crash. Double your potential with Superbeats Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews and 15% off your first order by going to GetSuperBeats.com and using promo code WEEKEND. That's SuperBeats.com, code WEEKEND. We're back with Heather Cox Richardson here on The Weekend Show. Um, Joe Biden, to all intents and purposes, is arguably a very significant president in recent political history and has really done quite a good job and maybe doesn't get the credit and doesn't get the coverage. And there is this obsession and fascination with him being too old, despite the fact that he's flying across multiple time zones and giving press conferences and is it any wonder that he might, you know, walk off in the wrong direction, you know, and I, I, I feel, I do feel sorry for, for him, you know, in that way, because we all need a rest, let's be honest, every now and then, and uh, as president, he, he doesn't stop. 
unlike Donald Trump as president, who barely worked. So, you know, there's that. Do you feel that, um, as I do, that, that we need to start talking up Joe Biden's successes a little more? And, and are we so obsessed with this rise of fascism and authoritarianism because it is such an important subject that we actually forget that the guy who's carrying most of the weight right now is is the the incumbent seeking uh, re-election. So, you know, in, in a couple of ways, it's funny to me that you say that because um, I do not try to, to talk up Joe Biden, but um, there are two aspects of his presidency and, and publicity that I find fascinating. The first is, you know, I'm a political historian, so I... I know presidents. I know Congresses. That's what I, that's my happy place. So I will tell you that this is the most transparent presidency possible in the modern world. So it was very hard. I found it very hard to figure out what on earth the Obama presidency was up to. And, and certainly the, the Trump administration, they just lied. I mean, they, they were all, there was all kinds of stuff going on that was uh, under the table at the very least, but openly illegal, as it has been discovered, things like the, the policy of tearing children away from their, uh, their, their parents at the border. You know, there's been a, a wonderful expose about that, I think also in the Atlantic, where that, you know, when they were told that that was illegal, they simply excluded the people who said it was illegal from the meetings about it. Yeah. So the, the facts are all out there. I mean, not all of them. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that administration can't talk about. And that's just par for the course. And that's part of national security. And that's legit, right? And, and I'm not suggesting there might be hidden stuff that we don't know about. But they have press conferences every day. Remember, Trump had a, a press secretary who never once had a press conference. You know, so they have press conferences every single day, but not just in the White House, also at defense, also at state. They publish all these documents all the freaking time. And and I am fascinated by the fact that so little of that makes it into legacy media or the mainstream media, because it's really an interesting story. I mean, what he has done with foreign affairs to try and wed democracy to the idea of globalization without colonialism by supporting this concept of regionalism where regions all get a seat at the table. That's fascinating. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but it's absolutely fascinating. And they're putting extraordinarily heavy duty muscle behind it. Similarly, the idea of working within and with Latin American countries to stabilize those countries to, to address the root causes of migration. Do people even know we've put $2.1 billion into Latin America uh, in the last two years to try and make that happen? I mean, those stories are really interesting stories and they're really not getting coverage. And they are doing it really, again, transparently because they are trying to make sure that people understand that democracy is a, is better than fascism. It is better than authoritarianism. And, and he says this all the time. So does Antony Blinken gave a really important early speech at the State Department where he said exactly that. And it is all out there. But it's not getting covered by the media. And, and you just said, should we be focusing on this? And I would say, I am not a journalist. I am not a political operative. I am a historian. So when I look at this moment, I cover Biden and I cover him quite positively 
Because as a historian, looking at the extraordinary strides he has made in the domestic sphere with the extraordinary passage of legislation that rivals at the very least the Great Society and possibly in the 1960s and possibly the New Deal in the 1930s, you can't not talk about it. And similarly, in the foreign sphere, he is the most sophisticated foreign policy president since Eisenhower. How you cannot cover that blows my mind. So one of the things that, that I feel like some of us are doing by going around, as I say, the, the normal places is certainly recognizing. I mean, there was a piece uh, this last week by Margaret Sullivan in The Guardian in which she said, you know, the media really should be talking about how dangerous Trump is and how much Biden is doing. And I thought she was her, her point was very well taken. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who are already doing it. And they have very large followings. So one of the things that would be interesting to me going forward is helping to wed that interest, which I think is out there, to the media that reaches more deeply into elite circles, for example, but also at the local level. So do people need to be paying attention to this? Absolutely. Love or hate Joe Biden. He and Kamala Harris, by the way, have been transformative in not only world history, but also global history. The timing of the war in the Middle East has kind of upset the apple cart a little bit in terms of Joe Biden's trajectory. Now, for those of us who analyze Donald Trump's effect on the Middle East, he undoubtedly destabilized all of the theaters of war that he inherited. Um, and he yet talks about the fact that during his term, there was no war. As he likes to say, there was no war. He also tells us, incidentally, that he had the most transparent presidency in history. He didn't, but he tells us that he did. So what we're dealing with now is, obviously, there's a, always a delay with foreign policy. It takes time for things to happen after you know policies are imposed. The, the question on a lot of Americans' minds right now is one of allegiance, because there is a traditional allegiance to the state of Israel by definition of the way it was created, and yet the response from Israel to, uh, towards Hamas for their terrorist attack has been significant, overwhelming, and, and, and some are saying that 10,000 Palestinians have died. So now people are starting to question their allegiances. And even Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden in their speeches are starting to talk very specifically about innocent Palestinian lives in a way that they may not have done before. How, how do you know, average Americans qualify this you know, and their allegiances going forward? This seems to me to be a great example of places where you need to untangle the threads because the, the loss of life on the Israeli side after Hamas ended the ceasefire on, that had held until October 6th, on October 7th, and the butchering of 1,400 people matters. At the same time, the extraordinary rain, uh, raining down of death on the civilians in um, the, the Palestinian territories also deeply matters. But one of the things that, you know, I am not an expert in the Middle East, so I've been madly reading from the very beginning. And I would say that, in fact, the, the 
Biden administration's policies have not changed. They have been very clear since the beginning that their first order of business was to make sure Iran did not escalate this into World War III. So we moved a couple of carrier groups over there. Um, and the, if, if you've been following it, you know that there have been increased attacks on U.S. troops coming out of Syria and real pushing back against um the Hezbollah in Lebanon. We've hit, uh, we've hit targets. The U.S. has hit targets three times. And it's important, again, to remember that Israel is its own country. The U.S. can advise, but it can't make the final determination. But with that first umbrella, the, the Iran must not get involved because if Iran gets involved, the entire region is going to, is going to blow up. And I, I always read, uh, Biden's initial, we will stand with Israel at all costs. Um, as, as a threat to it, to Iran, saying to Iran, don't you dare try anything. And they said that. Don't, don't, don't. They said that in every speech early on. That being said, it's also incredibly important to remember that Biden and Netanyahu do not have a good relationship. Netanyahu was very close to Trump. And, Net, and, and Netanyahu repeatedly snubbed Obama and repeatedly snubbed um, Biden and Biden and, and he are not on good terms. And Netanyahu is running this far right coalition that is designed primarily to keep him out of jail. People jokingly refer to it as the keep me out of jail coalition. And he has looked the other way as they have poured themselves into the West Bank, not into Gaza, but into the West Bank. Gaza is much more uh, an urban area than the West Bank is. And so that is also something that, that the Biden administration has tried to manage because Netanyahu has every interest in, you know, as somebody said, turning Gaza into a parking lot and taking over the West Bank because that's what his extremists want. So from the beginning, the Biden administration has tried to exercise uh, influence in Israel to stop Netanyahu from doing that, to make him you know, be much more con you know, careful about how he went in. Obviously, many people, and I'm trying not to express my own position here, but many people think that he has gone too far. I am not uh, an international law uh, laws of war expert by any stretch of the imagination, but we know that there are rules to what one can do in wartime. That being said, what I think is not getting a lot of attention is the degree to which um, Biden, Blinken, and other American voices have been working with Arab countries who also don't like Hamas, who also are concerned about the extending the influence of Iran in the area to try to come up with a way to work around Netanyahu to, in fact, create a two-state solution, something else that both Blinken, Biden, and um, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., have emphasized again and again and again and again. So, you know, one of the things you saw, for example, is Blinken meeting repeatedly with um, with Abbas, who is the Palestinian Authority leader, to say, maybe we can work with you to talk about Gaza, even though Hamas theoretically is the political entity as well as the, the military entity in charge of Gaza. So, T untangling all of this and recognizing that this is not just about, I, I'm not even looking at this, as I say, as a religious, in a religious way, but as a political situation where you have Hamas, a terrorist organization in charge of a, of a, of a community that does not necessarily support Hamas, but is covered by it. And a, 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 a right wing uh, other political entity 
that needs to attack. I mean, they both need to attack each other. Neither one of them want peace, but the countries around them now are calling as they did in Egypt the other day for a two-state solution. If that could be pulled out, it would end up being the possible good outcome of what is and has always been a horrific situation that has it has led to enormous losses of life. So what that's going to do at the end of the day for the American elections is, I think, unclear still. But I will say one of the things that I find fascinating about Biden is that I, this is a place I think his age is an extraordinary strength. He doesn't take things personally. When the New York Times reported that the Israelis had bombed that hospital rather than the fact it was an errant Hamas rocket that had that had uh, created the fire that killed so many people at that hospital. And so many of the Arab leaders with whom he was supposed to meet had to back out because of the protests in their streets. He didn't get he didn't seem to take it personally. He was like, well, what were they going to do? And this is a this is a place where I think he doesn't take it personally. And also at his age, I think he would like to leave the kind of triumph that we came so close to in 2000 when it looked as if we would have a two state solution under um, President um, Bill Clinton and um, Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO at the time, nixed it. He would like to see that happen. And if that happens, and similarly, if we end up getting, uh, and by the way, the U.S. is the the lead, um, it, it donates the most aid to the Palestinian um, refugee support, by the way, uh, which people don't emphasize, but the U.S. is not walking away from the Palestinians. Um, if he could do that, and if Ukraine continues to make the inroads that it is making against the Russian invasion, 2024 is going to look really different than then than it does now. And, and I do think if you wrap that back into American political discourse, I have my grave suspicions about why House Republicans are at this point starving the Ukrainian military, because I think they recognize that if it continues to make the inroads that it is making, which anybody can follow, by the way, from the Institute for the Study of War, which is available online, um, it's going to look really good for Biden. And they are willing to compromise our national security in order to make him look bad going into 2024. But the Republicans in Congress, or I should call them the extremists and MAGA Republicans who now very much control Congress, they are doubling down to the point that they are censuring the political discourse. So uh, Rashida Tayyib has just been censured. She's the only Palestinian American in Congress. She's given some very impassioned speeches, and yet they don't want to hear from her anymore. I mean, this is unprecedented, isn't it, to kind of silence these voices in this way at these types of moments, is it not? Yeah, yes, it is. And they're not censuring their own for um, for equally inflammatory statements on the other side. Yeah. But this takes us right back to where we started. American political, the American political system is currently being held hostage by a group of extremists who are at this point driven by their um, uh, Christian nationalist base and they are trying to overturn democracy. And that is the central issue with which we are dealing at this moment. And I'm not just talking about the 2024 election. I am extraordinarily concerned about funding the government by November 17th, or at least getting a continuing resolution, which is appalling, by the way, yeah. but getting a continuing resolution because 
it is no accident that this is happening right before the biggest commercial period in the year, uh, which will badly, badly hurt the economy. And, you know, those sorts of things, sabotaging our government in order to convince people that they're the ones who need to be in charge is both personally offensive to me, but also extraordinarily destructive of our entire country. And that is the battle that I think we're going to be fighting on a daily basis until this extremist mob is destroyed. And it's the extension that... of the insurrection, isn't it, Heather? I mean, yes, January 6th is still going on. And by not funding the government, which I'm sure they intend to do because it's on Biden's watch, so therefore that kind of gives them collateral, but also destabilizing, um, you know, the, the Tommy Tuberville argument that you made earlier about the fact that he is in the way of these military appointments at a time when we need our military to be at the top of its game. This is all the insurrection. Mike Johnson and all of these people are insurrectionists, and it's still going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. From the, from the inside this time, you know, with the, they might have fixed the windows on the outside after January 6th, but now they very much seeded themselves into the, into the, 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 the halls of Congress. So, so how does, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so how, how, does, this, how does this end? Maybe it doesn't. The genie's not going to go back into the bottle, right? We're not going to get the old Republican Party that belonged to our grandparents, are we? Not out of these group. Out of the, out, not out of this group. No, no. So um, first of all, let's say that it it is going to end for two reasons. Strong men always fall, always. The question is mitigating the damage that they do before they fall. But also, it's going to end because of a demographic change in this country by twenty 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 eight. The the up and coming uh, voters who are far more progressive than the baby boomers, of which I'm one, so I'm not deliberately picking on people, will have completely eclipsed them. The baby boomers by then, by eight years from now, or no, five years from now, will be much less powerful than they are currently. And they're the ones who are so heavily Republican. So there will be an end there too. What that's going to look like, of course, depends on 2024 and whether some people like Donald Trump or Donald Trump himself can use the the levers of the federal government, the Department of Justice, the military, um, the prisons, the newspapers, all those sorts of things to put somebody and keep somebody like him in power. If they do that, we will have a situation that looks very much like Hungary, where Viktor Orban was able to hollow out and then destroy their democracy in the very ways in which the Donald Trump and the, the radical right in America are now trying to emulate. And they are quite deliberately looking to Orban and to Orban's measures to enable them to do it. They are in some cases, there's a carbon copy of a Hungarian law being imported, for example, yep. into places like Florida. So, so how does and they this invited play? him to CPAC, of course, and they he, Trump has spoken about him dozens of times in the last few weeks as somebody that he really looks up to. Well, and, and isn't that bizarre? Hungary is like the size of Michigan, and it's got you know, it's a very small population, and I just find it. Uh, 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 hard to get my head around the idea people are talking about making America great by emulating Hungary. I mean, yeah. no, no slur on Hungary, but really? Well, you know? he thought Hungary was Turkey, so that's probably... That's oh, well, probably you know, you know well, Turkey yeah. has, and Hungary as well have beautiful arts, so maybe that was it. Maybe he was interested yeah. in that. But 
But the other side of this is how do people today combat the rise of authoritarianism? Because as people who study authoritarianism, people like Timothy Schneider of, Leo, uh, Schneider of Yale say, um, it's much easier to fight authoritarianism before it takes over rather than after it takes over. And this is what we are looking at for the next year. So one of the things in the short term that people can do is what is, is first of all, to call your members of Congress, especially if they are young Republican members of Congress who might want to have a career and say, fund the damn government, you know, but uh, but there is also relational organizing that we know as political scientists tell us that the way to get people to the polls is not necessarily by talking to strangers or making speeches or sending letters, but talking to your friends and making sure they show up, talking to people that you meet, talking to people that you know and who trust you and say, listen, I'm really scared about what this future is going to look like if Donald Trump starts throwing journalists in jail or if he, you know, s creates federal penalties that punish women for obtaining abortions, the sorts of things that he's talking about. Um, in terms of the Republican Party, though, one of the things that I think will come if, in fact, people do manage to push back against the extremists is the resurrection of a traditional Republican Party, because the United States needs at least two fully functioning political parties for many reasons. Um, but just quickly, parties provide oversight of each other so they don't they're not corrupt. And if you don't think that matters. Take a look at Mississippi, for example, where welfare funds seem to have been funneled into the pockets of uh, uh, the governor's supporters or in Ohio, where key lawmakers in the Republican Party have just been sentenced to jail for their operation that cost taxpayers gazillions of dollars. That's a scientific term, but also because it lets people think that they have a future in the political system. If you take that away, if you say the political system can never represent you, they lose faith in a democracy and they turn into either disaffected people or violent people. So we need those two political parties. And right now, all of the common sense and all of the actual problem solving is on the Democratic side. That can't last. Um, the Democrats, as they currently consist, could split in two, or we could see the rise of a new political party uh, from the center right that re-embraces the traditional values of the Republican Party, that the government should support people at the who are just beginning out, beginning into the um, economic system through access to resources, including education, and develop the economy through that focus on people at the bottom. Uh, that system and that idea that then that supports a healthy middle class and supports uh, a, a wealthier class that is still kept within a somewhat sl uh, sl uh, smaller uh, band than it has uh, than has developed since the eight, 1980s is central to the American system the same way that the Democrats are central to the American system and when the party does that when we get a party like that it is extraordinarily successful that's Eisenhower that's Theodore Roosevelt that's um, Republican politicians who are actually serving the people. And there is absolutely room for that in the United States. But it is a terrible error to believe that today's Republicans have anything to do with those people. Those are the people that Newt Gingrich started calling Republicans in name only and bled them out of the party. So the current day Republican Party is, for all intents and purposes, a right wing extremist reactionary. Some people would even call them fascist party. It's certainly an authoritarian party. That is not, that is not 
representing America. And that will be replaced in some fashion. And it could be a fashion even that calls itself Republican. But in any case, it will re-embrace, I think, the values of the traditional Republican Party. Okay. I, I, it's good to finish in a more optimistic way. And I, I'm, I'm very pleased to kind of hear that prediction that it kind of has to, it has to sort itself out. When you got so far, I suppose there's only one way to go. Okay, thank you so much, Heather Cox Richardson, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to support me and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five-minute news. And the five-minute news daily podcast drops every morning. You can hear me tell you what's going on in the US and around the world while you make your morning coffee. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and more factual news stories to discuss on the five-minute news weekend show with Midas Touch. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well-known but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the Presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.